this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. And today we're the podcast with a special guest. Yes, we do. A, a third Milliken. Liz, yeah. Liz, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Liz Milliken. I live in Portland, Oregon. And I am a professor of history out She's there. She's wicked smart. <laughs> well, well, I, Someone told I have story. a lot of degrees, put it that way. I have a lot of advanced degrees. Yes. And today you're going to be talking about the case in Portland, Oregon. Yes, the disappearance of Kyron Horman. Yeah. So, but first we have some updates, right? Yes. This is our 30th episode, by the way. Yes, it, it is. It is. So, before, you, do you want me to go first? Well, yeah, because yours is older than mine. Okay. Right? Yep. So on our episode 22, we talked about the Tony Sanborn case, and I'm not going to go into all the ins and outs, except for that he was a, at 16, he was arrested for the murder, the 1989 Portland, Maine murder of Jessica Briggs, another teenager, and he was recently let out of jail as they review the case. And there was a story in the Portland Press Herald on June 21st, so that was a few days ago from the day we're recording, that two profilers for the defense have said that it's possible that Jessica Briggs was a victim of a serial killer, possibly even the Connecticut Valley serial killer who was active in the 1970s and 1980s, mostly along the Vermont-New Hampshire border, the Connecticut River. Next week's episode, we're actually going to talk about the Connecticut Ooh. River Valley killer in conjunction with the Sanborn case. So that's a new thing that's been brought into this case. And I think we talked about in episode 22 how the defense has maintained all along that the murder of Jessica Briggs wasn't the murder of some kid stabbing his girlfriend because he was pissed off at her, yeah, but it was much it, more... Uh, it, it didn't seem... I mean, she was just some... Some more ritualized yes. type of murder. I, and I'm not going to go on because we have a lot to do today, but so that's the latest in that case. And I'll talk more about the serial killer angle in the Anthony Sanborn case next week, but I just wanted to update that. Nice. And now you have an Annie Dukin update. Yes. Uh, it was in the Boston Globe on June 22nd. It was in the Boston Globe on June 22nd, and it is... Uh, let me just read some of the... Well, first, before you read it, let's play something I said last week. Okay. Because you don't want somebody to have a bag of, you know, let's just say sugar for whatever reason, and I know, again, I'm oversimplifying it, and for them to go to jail for having yeah. a bag of Coke. Yes, and you, as usual, were right. As always. <laughs> so <laughs> so this is the, let me just read the headline, is Judge Orders Dukin to Pay $2 Million to Wrongly Convicted Man. Yeah, he'll which, get that. Yeah, I doubt he'll ever get anything. But So th this guy, Leonardo Johnson, 53 now, of Dorchester, has won, he's the first person to win a lawsuit against her personally. Now I'm surprised he didn't sue the. I guess he can't sue. He the sued state. a whole mess of people. Oh, okay, I'll look. I'm sorry. I should have. I should have read better. So he's got. She's got 30 days to appeal. I don't know. if She's gonna bother. He does. She probably doesn't have any money, so it doesn't matter. What happened was. Let me just start at the the funnest part of it. Johnson was arrested in November 2008 in Chinatown. When an undercover police officer asked him for a 20, in quotes, which means a $20 rock of crack cocaine, he saw an opportunity to make some cash to buy drugs for himself, he testified at trial. 
At the time, Johnson was addicted to crack cocaine, he told the court. But the small nugget Johnson sold the officer was not, in fact, crack. He later testified it was a small piece of peanut or a similar tree nut. He was surprised that an experienced officer even believed it contained any drugs. Johnson had previous arrests for drug possession, but said he was never a dealer. Minutes after the transaction, officers from the Boston Police Department's drug unit arrested Johnson for distributing narcotics in a school zone. Unlike the vast majority of people facing drug charges, Johnson refused to take a plea deal. Confident that the substance he sold contained no drugs, he took the stand at trial in November 2009. To Johnson's surprise, Dukin, who at the time was a forensic chemist at the Hinton Drug Lab in Jamaica Plain, testified that the chemical test confirmed the presence of cocaine in the sample. <laughs> I knew she was lying, Johnson said in an interview. Ain't no way, no how, a cashew can turn into crack. <laughs> the jury quickly returned a guilty verdict, and Johnson was sentenced to two years and one day in prison. By the time Dukin was charged with evidence tampering in September 2012, Johnson had served his sentence in full. He successfully petitioned for a new trial in Suffolk County, Prosecutors dropped their case against him in April 2013, citing the ongoing criminal investigation into Dukin. So, so, and that for the rest about her, you would have to listen to uh, right. episode 29. But she, about 40,000 cases were affected by her falsifying yes. evidence. And this is a great example of what that did. And it's kind of troubling that apparently Boston police, at least in 2008, were just walking up to black guys random black guys in school zones and asking if they could buy drugs from them. And this guy, who had no drugs and wasn't a dealer, figured, okay, I'll make some money, and gave the guy a peanut instead for 20 or bucks. Cashew. Yeah, or a cashew. Or a cashew. That's kind of troubling in itself. Yeah. You know, that seems like a waste of resources yes, and a little bit of profiling. Is. And I would argue that most the of the war on drugs is <laughs> well, a waste of resources. Well, also yeah. when the officer is handed a cashew or a peanut, whatever it might have been. And doesn't, um, yeah, you know, it's like some, he you would can raise picture the guy reaching down into his pocket like and going through the lint in his pocket. What do I have in here that might <laughs> I know. look like a drug? I know. You know? Oh my but, God. I guess I just want to friggin' but, you know, people. She is, she is the one that did the tampering but also she's also the one taking most of the blame when she should have been there should have been oversight over yeah. yes right. she should have been checked a long time before she was well there was a system failure yeah well you know. like i said if you go in there and you're doing what three times what everyone else is doing for testing in the same amount of time as everyone else i mean Right. Somebody should be saying, huh, maybe we should double check that right. she's not cutting any corners. Right. That they're not cashews instead of <laughs> rocks. Yeah, yeah. And, and if her coworkers complain, people probably figured it was sour grapes. Well, yeah, yeah that's because she's She's making it than, look bad while you yeah. guys sit around. She's raising the bar for you ladies anyways. But anyway. So, so, so do we have anything else? No. Okay, then I guess we can mm. get right to the Kyron Horman story. Yes, I've been waiting to do this for quite a while. Yeah, that's right. We discussed it at Christmas. I guess. Yes. So, on Friday, June 10th, 2010, Terry Moulton Horman brought her seven-year-old stepson, Kyron Horman, to Skyline Elementary School in Portland, Oregon. The school had opened early for a science fair where Kyron was to show an exhibit on tree frogs. After viewing the exhibits and taking a picture of Kyron in front of his exhibit, Moulton Horman says she saw Kyron walk into his classroom and she left the school to go about her activities for the day. Huh. Hmm. Um, Kyron Horman has not been seen since. 
The search for him was one of the largest and most expensive ever conducted in Oregon. To this day, his body has not been found. There's no hint of his whereabouts if he's still alive. And no one has been charged with the crime or even named as a suspect or person of interest. However, one person has clearly been the focus of law enforcement's investigations into the unsolved disappearance of Kyron Harmon. Ooh, I wonder Ooh. who. I wonder who that <laughs> would be. So the day began on Friday, June 4th, uh, with this science fair. And then there was also, later that afternoon, supposed to be a talent show where Kyron apparently also was supposed to appear. Ah. And, and it's kind of interesting that more notice wasn't taken that he wasn't in school uh, that day. But um, how old was he? Eight? He was seven. 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 He was seven years old. Um, So Terry Moulton Horman, his stepmom, and uh, he, she had pretty much raised Kyron since he was um, almost really a baby. And I can get a little more into that background later. She arrives with Kyron. They set up the exhibit. Now, didn't he normally, I don't mean to break in, he normally took the bus to school, right? But she drove him that day. Yes, she drove him that day. Mm, Because, apparently because they had this exhibit, which she had worked on with him. And and when you look at the picture of it, and there's a picture. I have such a cute picture. And it's very well done. And it's pretty clear, as people noted, and she was the type of mother caregiver to to um be very involved in these things she probably did a lot of the exhibit herself and she also by the way i should not get into her background yet but she was um had a a master's degree in education and had worked intermittently as a substitute teacher um, elementary school teacher she never really successfully was able however to get a full-time job Hmm, i wonder why and she'd not been working for at least seven years since she married kyron's Um, dad a mother is a job (laughs) yes oh i know i'm Let's say a wage-paying job outside of the home. Okay. Yeah, we make fun of that. So they set up the exhibit, and and at the science fair, the president of the uh, school PTA um, saw them and talked with them as Kyron's in front of the exhibit, and Terry took a picture of Kyron in front of his exhibit with his, you know, his beaming proudly, with his little glasses on and everything. He's a very cute little boy. So according to Terry... She left after watching Kyron walk towards his classroom after they toured the science fair together. The way it was set up was that all the kids were supposed to have a chaperone who would show them around the science fair, and then the kids would go to their classrooms for the day. There was a report, not sure where it originated from, but it was reported by the sheriff after the search began that a student saw Kyron after that near the south entrance of the school. But within 24 hours, the sheriff retracted that statement, and it's never been confirmed. It's a big deal for people who try to think of an alternative explanation for Kyron's disappearance. The blogosphere. Um, But the fact that it was retracted so soon seems to me that if it was a student, seven, eight-year-olds, who did knows say, when it was really? Did the kids say when he? No, the, the implication when was when it first was announced was that it was sometime after right. Terry reported seeing her stepson right. going towards his classroom. But I think the reason it was retracted is because they right. actually couldn't. Like kids that age don't have a sense of time. Yeah, yeah, and you get a sense that there's a science fair going on. People are wandering around, right. and who knows hmm. when this kid saw Kyron, or if he indeed saw him at all right. on his own. At some point, Kyron's homeroom teacher, Christina Porter, reports some absence. Another report that I saw said that actually she took the role and he was not in the classroom. So mm-hmm. she marked him absent. And I'm still actually not sure if she herself saw him at the science fair. But he was definitely there. 
there's a picture of him there. Yeah, um, Terry documented yes, it. I was going to say, Terry she, documented she, she it. She conveniently documented um, and t- talked to them. Then, the, according to Terry, that what she then did is she went, ran some errands. She had her toddler with her 19-month-old sister of Chiron, who was the daughter of Terry and so uh, Chiron's, Chiron's dad. Yeah, Chiron's half-sister. Was the little girl with her in the science fair? I don't think so. Mm. Um, so one of the, this is one of the th- questions I have that, I can't really fit is that she talks about driving around and one of the things that she did because there are large chunks of the day she could not account for afterwards she was driving around the the toddler was teething and was cranky and she was driving around the largely rural roads which I'll explain in a minute of this neighborhood uh, trying to get the toddler to fall asleep yeah, or to quiet I've down um, then she went grocery shopping at some point then she also went to the gym to work out and I'm assuming if she did do that and I, I'm not sure if they ever uh, confirmed that that there would have been a daycare I'm not sure I'm not sure yeah. what's going on with the toddler during all well, this, I did see a reference, and this was like a clip from something, so I'm not sure exactly what it was, but that she had called her husband's gym at one point, and I don't know if it was that day or another day or a year later or whatever. She asked whoever answered the phone at the gym if the little girl was in the daycare place at the gym, and the guy said no. And I have no idea what the context of that right, was, right. but it just shows some gym that they used had a daycare hmm. Yeah, where the yeah. people who worked there were familiar with her and who she was. Yeah, right. So, yeah, so it's interesting to me that I've never really heard confirmation one way or another if she actually was at the gym or if yeah, the, it seems the like the kid girl was, in the was there, the girl wasn't there, like at school, too. Nobody's ever said she had the toddler with her but at yeah, school. Yeah, so that's one of those kind of unresolved issues. So Terry then said that she returned home one fifteen or so. She posted the photos of Kyron at the Science Fair on her Facebook page. It later then is revealed that the father, Kane Horman, returns home from work about 2 and continues to work at home. In the first accounts, they don't say this, but eventually it's revealed that at 3.30 p.m., Terry and Kane, I'm looking at my timeline here, it wasn't revealed that Kane went with her to meet the bus until June 25th. So that's a good 15 days after the, or or, 20 days almost after the disappearance. They go to meet the bus. Kyron is not on the bus. The bus driver says he never got on the bus. So she apparently calls the school in a panic, asking, like, what happened? They say, well, he's marked absent for the day. The Skyline school secretary places a call to 911 at 3.46 p.m. I have a question, which you probably would have answered if it had been in your information. So it must not be the school's policy to call a child's right. home? Right. That became a big controversy because they did Especially not have a, a policy. Kid like that. Yeah. yeah, they didn't have a policy in place to call the home if a child has an unexpected used absent. Now, almost immediately, they instated that kind of policy. Wasn't there also, and I remember this because I visited you in Oregon right after he disappeared, Mm -hmm. back then, and I haven't seen it repeated a lot since, but there was some confusion about whether Terry had told the school he had a doctor's appointment. The teacher thought he had a doctor's appointment, Mm -hmm. and so when he wasn't there, she was like, he's not here because of his doctor's appointment, but Terry later said, no, it wasn't that day. It was a different day. Right, yeah, exactly. So, and I couldn't find, in my digging back, I couldn't find all the details about that, but I distinctly remember that at the time, that that was in some of the news accounts that the teacher had assumed this was the day that Terry was, you know, he showed up for the exhibit and everything, but he would be going to his doctor's Uh. appointment after. And in fact, I... I got the implication that she thought that's one of the reasons why Terry actually brought him to the school yes, that day. Because then she would, they would be after the exhibit, they'd be going to the doctor's that, appointment. Would, yeah, and so, it could be, it could be one of the things where 
It's not in writing that she did tell actually right. tell she just because she was that. friendly with the teacher because she had been a teacher's aide on right that's and, another detail is that terry so volunteered the started second guessing herself or yeah. maybe didn't but yeah right. there's but no the, but terry okay. apparently had volunteered at the school a lot and apparently worked quite closely with kyron's oh, teacher sure. so they were had a sense of security about her because they knew her and had yeah, worked with right, her so right. maybe she could even kind of do stuff that a regular parent but apparently it was not a set policy right. at the school to contact parents when the child was absent immediately i also have so, another question that strange. when they went to meet the bus was that their normal routine that both parents that's something i'm actually not sure about i don't know because it sounds like another cover her ass thing will both go meet the bus yeah, and i think it's interesting and that, that at Kyron is on it I, I mean, there's the a witness I, I i think it's interesting that at first the story is that she went to the bus and then it's not until june 25th that yeah, it comes like, out oh, yeah, that, I oh well, i went to the bus too or even well, that he had been there during would, the afternoon he was at the house during think the that he would come right out and say he yeah did. yeah so that's interesting to me and you know i would so. never trust anyone whose name was kane i mean he's not the one who named himself but who names their kid kane it's spelled it's differently with a K, K. yeah but still and an, e. and an e on the end but still <laughs> yeah it might have been a it might have been a surname maybe his the dad was adam or so adam raised yeah. the king yeah. Well, yeah. anyways, returning Sorry. to the events at hand. So the 911 is called by the school secretary at 3.46 p.m. By 4.33 p.m., officers from the Portland Police Bureau and the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office arrive simultaneously at Skyline School and the Horman home, and a massive search begins to ensue. Hmm. Um, yeah. Over the next few days, a number of, there's one mountain rescue eventually is called in. The FBI it comes in at some point, and I'm not going to get into all the details about that. Except that this ended up being one of the biggest and most expensive searches mm. ever, just like, just like in and in, uh, in <laughs> Oregon history. Oh, it was in fact that evening between seven and seven forty-five p.m. that the sheriff, Multnomah County Sheriff Dan Stanton, personally called the FBI to alert them about the disappearance. Mm. And the first search begins that evening around Skyline School and then expands to throughout the broader neighborhood. And I need to explain just a little bit about what the neighborhood is like. The to kinda, and the geography to kind of explain, this is not like even a regular suburban neighborhood. This is in Portland, but Portland has in its western side a massive park called Forest Park that is in fact like a forested wilderness area. It's inside Portland, but it's this massive stretch about seven miles deep and at least 20 to 25 miles long that spans the western edge of the city in these in this very hilly area and Skyline School and the neighborhood around it Skyline Boulevard and also another major road Germantown Road go kind of skirt the periphery of Forest Park and the neighborhoods around it are sort of adjacent to this very very heavily wooded I mean it's really amazing I've hiked in it many times and you are like when you're hiking in that park you would almost never know that you're in the in the boundaries of a major metropolitan city really is like a forest out in in the middle of nowhere and the neighborhood around it is also really kind of semi-rural there Mm -hmm. there are a lot of trees a lot of patches of wood so you're almost sort of in the countryside so just to give people a sense of the geography and i'm remembering because we went driving around when i visited you that summer a few weeks after this happened and we drove by the school and I could be picturing something totally different. Maybe I'm remembering the time we went to look for where the gun was dumped from the <laughs> yeah. Sharon Tate thing in California. But isn't the school like on a ridge? Like isn't there it seemed to me that there it's 
not surrounded by houses and stuff. Right, yeah, and I can't remember exactly. And I it, feel like, in, and maybe the word skyline is what has me, thinking that it's like on a hill that goes down. I can't say I can remember okay. very well. I'm sorry, and I should have. No, no, if right. I had had time, I just submitted it's final really grades right before I came here. But it doesn't seem like... I had wanted to go out and drive and revisit some of these locations before right. I came back. I, east, I remember feeling I at the time that if he was going to wander away from the school... It's not like he would just immediately wander into woods. There was a, like a two-lane. It's on a two-lane road. Right, right. Yeah. But it seemed like there was some kind of drop-off or somewhere that it wouldn't be easy for a little kid to just wander. Right. And the teacher in an article that appeared in the Oregonian just the day after the disappearance talked about how, um, at that point, they're talking totally like this is just a missing kid case. No right. suspicious, you know, the, you know, no, nothing criminally indicated at that point or anything. And she said it would have been uncharacteristic of him to wander off on his own. He was a rather timid child. Mm-hmm. He stuck close to the grownups. He's not someone who would, she thought, would be likely to wander off on his own anyways. But yeah, so the school's in this kind of semi-rural neighborhood of Portland, Oregon, and the homes are surrounded by woods. And and there's another area called Savi Island several miles away that ends up becoming a major focus of the search, um, which I'll talk about in a second. So the FBI is now involved. One of the things that they buy late that evening... um, Now, the FBI's involved... You know, because the sheriff called them. Well, he even called though, them. They're not heavily involved yet. I even think. though it's a missing kid search, like one of the FBI only. They really, weren't. They no, do no, missing persons. Oh, do they? Too. Okay, yeah, they yes, do missing so, persons. Okay. But I'm not sure that they were. That. I'm not yeah. sure if they were actively involved until okay. a few days later, actually. But okay. they do get actively involved in the case as time goes I on. I think. I um, think the reason a lot of times they become involved in missing persons is because. Because it could turn into a a murder or a kidnapping kidnapping. and they want to be in on the beginning. So one of the things that they do that very first evening is they thoroughly search the school itself, all across spaces, storage areas, classrooms, outbuildings. And they also thoroughly search the Horman house. One lady calls 911 late that evening to say, make sure you check. There's a train tunnel near the school. Make sure you check that because kids sometimes hide in it. And apparently they check that. So the search continues and the AP is notified the next morning for the first time. And the subject line is Sheriff's Office continues search for seven-year-old Kyron Horman. So this massive search ensues. At noon the next day, a sheriff spokesman said the search for Kyron is still a missing person case, not a criminal investigation. And the authorities hold two news conferences and announced that the FBI and the National Guard have joined the effort. So it's the day after that the FBI and the National Guard actively get involved in the search. Uh, And they're still what are characterized as search and rescue crews who are doing a big grid search around the Mm -hmm. school. Uh, Facebook pages go up in support of Kyron and his family and all kinds of things. Terry, the next day, Sunday, June 6th, two days after the disappearance, Terry Moulton-Horman posts on Facebook Mm -hmm. to say that she's ordered a missing persons flyer, that she's ordered a thousand flyers, and that they're going to start distributing them. The FBI announces that they have brought in Quantico profiler from Quantico, Virginia, to create a profile of the boy. Uh, The students get interviewed, their parents get interviewed, Um, the relatives start distributing these flyers with this famous picture of Kyron and a description of what he was wearing. One of the things that came up with us earlier today as we were talking was that apparently his backpack and coat were still at the school. And I do have a vague memory. I couldn't find that in my search through the old news accounts. But I do remember something like that being, that's where they thought that maybe it was likely that he could have wandered off. In any case, the, the search continued. Now, these are flyers that the family made, right? Right. Yeah. They are the law enforcement flyers right, right. later that I'm sure you'll talk about. 
that have that strangely have his stepmother and her white pickup truck on them. Oh right, yes, yeah, I'll get to that yeah. in a minute. Well, partly they explained that is that they wanted to be able to eliminate. Yeah. But she claimed that. Well, we won't go into that. Yeah. 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 But um. Sorry. So I um. Jump yeah. In so by so. the evening of Monday, <laughs> June seventh, still continuing searches sweeping the area, and Kelly Ramirez, who is the sister of Kyron's birth mother, Desiree Young, issues a statement thanking the community, and they actually uh, support. Supporters of the family by Tuesday, June 8th, have set up a reward for information. And Wednesday, June 9th, as search and rescue efforts continue, Terry Moulton Horman, the stepmother, who is the last purportedly to see Kyron, makes her Facebook wall private. Mm-hmm. And a FBI spokeswoman uh, that morning announces that the Horman family is not speaking to the media because they do not believe it's in the best interest of finding Kyron. By Wednesday, June 9th, Portland Mountain Rescue were called. Um, they're very important um, where I, in Portland, Oregon, where there are some serious mountains, Mount Hood being mm-hmm. most notable, where people get lost in mm-hmm. these mountainous areas. So they are extremely experienced searching for people in very, very rough terrain. And yeah. so it's kind of notable that they were called in. Yeah, we have a group um, like that in Maine, too. Yeah. Yeah. Maine so, um, yeah. Uh, so Friday, June 11th, the search expands to Savi Island. This is interesting because Savi Island is several miles away. Savi Island is, this whole area is adjacent to the Columbia River. The Columbia River is this massive river that traverses the north end of Portland. It meets with the Willamette River kind of in just north of town. And then the Columbia continues north and then eventually turns west out to the Pacific Ocean. It's a big river. It's a big river. And Savi Island, Savi Island is a large island in the middle of the Columbia, somewhat to the north of town and um, east of this neighborhood, several miles east of this neighborhood. People live on it. It's about 10 miles long, maybe three miles wide. Um, it has nurseries and dairies. And there's a bridge to it. There's a bridge yeah. to it. Maureen we and I have visited it. I've visited it frequently. And our Kyron Horman oh, tour. Yeah, and, and our Kyron Horman tour. And now why, now maybe you were coming to this, but why did the Well, serve? apparently what happened No, we is, didn't find him. Cherry <laughs> gave an account of her activities during the day that included this driving around the immediate neighborhood, going to the grocery store, going to the gym with her to- and apparently her with her toddler the whole time mm-hmm. and then goes home with well, a they- teething fussy toddler yeah. well yeah well okay let me run to get hannah to fall asleep. yeah no, well let, let yeah let me continue okay. apparently they found the pings on her cell phone Ooh. that showed that she had driven uh. in a number of areas that she had not described in ah. her initial no account. Cell phone pings, they'll get you. And she, time. and apparently she's never really accounted for, um, I'm not sure if she, she just basically refuses to explain or account for whether she could, but the pings showed that she had, her cell phone at least, had been traversing Savi Island. Um, which hmm. is several miles away. Mm-hmm. There's really nothing there. I mean, there are no gro- even grocery stores. There's yeah. no reason why someone would go. You, the reason you go there is to visit one of the beaches or go to one of the berry yeah. picking places, visit one of the nurseries. It's just a quaint kind of no. little. And so they started to search extensively uh, on Savi Island and around the beaches and in the river around Savi Island that day. And also that day, for the first time, the Chiron family appears at a news conference. Or Horman family. Chiron's family, yes. right. The Horman family. Tony Young, Chiron's stepfather, announces you know the, how much they miss him and thanks the volunteers and everything. Then Kane Horman, 
Chiron's father. Tony Young is married to, married to Chiron's birth mother, Desiree and, Young. And he's a cop, right? A police detective in another Oregon town. He Medford, may be. I, I don't remember yes. that, but it's, it's but that could be yeah. true, yeah. And then um, Kane gave a similar kind of, you know, thank you, how grateful they are. The whole time you can see Terry standing next to Desiree Young. Desiree Young is Chiron's uh, birth mother. And she's she's I'm has her arm that, around yeah, Desiree around Young. Mm-hmm. There's a, you know, when Kane returns back to the line, she hugs him. And there's a lot mm. of kind of overt where she's comforting the other people and looking sad. I remember when this was broadcast and on a cable news show that is not necessarily credible. Um, you know, one of these true crime shows, I'll say yeah. it, it's the uh, Nancy Gray yeah, show, which yeah, I, I, think Gray, yeah. I think she likes to prosecute people she, in the she, court of public opinion. Yeah, know, but there was an expert remarking that evening, um, looking at that and remarking on how she was very concerned about Terry Horton's body language. Um, and, and Molten Horman. Molten, uh, I'll get into this. Maybe this is a good point to do it, but I'll explain the other name. But she said that, and unfortunately, Nancy Grace didn't follow up and say, well, what indeed, give us a detailed analysis of what you're seeing yes. in body language. Um, but, it, it, but, it, but it said it to this expert. Mm-hmm. Actually, Nancy, Nancy, I watched a clip of that today. The woman is about to start talking about Nan and they show the picture of him at the science fair and Nancy's like, Oh, look at that little face. Oh, what do you just love? There are so yeah. many people who would love to have a little child and she was over like two minutes. <laughs> yeah, so Nancy Grace fails to follow up with this expert yes. of what exactly are you seeing in this body language that's of concern to you? But one of the things the expert did say was that it indicated to her that at least she seemed to know something. One of the things I noticed um, that another body language expert brings up in another context mm. much later on is that while Kane and the stepfather are talking about uh, Kyron's disappearance and thinking, although she touches her nose a lot. And that, in another context, in another appearance of Terry many years later, another expert indicates that as a kind of sign of deception. Deception. This one of the things that's expert. <laughs> no, we're sitting on our the, hands. One of the things the expert did say is that she said the body language concerned her. It made her think that Terry. Molten Horman knew more about the disappearance of this child than she was letting on. And this is just what, June 11th, you know, a week after yeah. the And do you think, now the body and, language. And she <laughs> said that if she was a normal person with a normal psychological makeup, she would, if she did know something, she would eventually break down. It would be very difficult for her to keep it secret and because she, she would be plagued with guilt. But she said if she is a sociopath, she can, she's perfectly capable of never, ever saying anything that could incriminate herself. And, in fact, she may eventually convince herself that she didn't have anything to do with it, yeah. even though she may have. So that just always has stuck with me. Can we talk about the body language for a sec? Yeah. Now, none of us are body language experts, no. that, granted. And Nancy Grace didn't let her body language expert get to the details or didn't ask about the details. But would you say the way... And I remember that press conference, seeing that. Would you say... She was overdoing it. Yeah, that's what it looked like. Oh, to and me. maybe being sociopathic, and that here is how a concerned person is supposed but to also act. But also, like the parent, like like Susan Smith type of thing, where the or where you hear the nine one one calls from a guy that killed his wife. They're 
acting. Yeah, like you were saying, this is this is how I would act if this happened. The mother right, is standing without. there, this devastated look on it. She's the mother is standing there, Desiree Young is standing in there shock. with in shock with her arms at her side, this most most devastated, distraught look on her face, red eyed, you know, just with this anguished look on her face, but kind of standing stock still. Mm-hmm. And Terry has got her armor on her, putting her head on Desiree's shoulder Ooh, at one yeah, point, yeah. is then embracing Kane. Almost attention-getting kind of behavior. Yeah. yeah, and almost like, almost looking to me, again, as we continue, I'm rather biased, uh-huh. so that you need it's to take okay. that into account. We do that on here. Looking <laughs> to me, looking to me, I remember even at the time thinking it looked like she's kind of trying to make herself the center of attention, and yes. she's doing all this almost overdone Look, what a kind great of person I, yeah. I have to say, I visited you, it was probably less than a week after he disappeared, and at that point, we were talking... She was yeah because in part because a, she was the last person to see yes. him and the immediate relatives are always the first that you yeah. need to suspect so that's all immediately and and by the way social media at this point is already convicting kind of her convicting but, her in, in, in you know the court of public opinion and as far so. as the immediate re- relatives thing I had watched Dateline on this and his stepfather Tony Young who's a detective said when it was clear to him early on that this was going to be a criminal investigation of some part, he said to all of the parents of Chiron, be prepared, your lives are no longer private, they're no longer your own, and you're going to get asked a lot of questions. And he said he was immediately suspicious of Terry, not only because of the circumstances, but because she was affronted that she was going to be asked questions, and that she didn't think she should have to be asked questions, and he thought that was a little odd yeah. of her. Well, I'm, this is maybe a good point to just get a little bit into the family background because oh, yeah. it's kind of convoluted. And I know I want to continue with the with the events, but but I think it's really relevant to know that Terry had been married twice before. So this is a woman who I think at the time of Kyron's disappearances in maybe her mid thirties, who's on her third marriage. Again, this doesn't mean she's guilty. No, but what it does speak to a very kind of convoluted and frankly rather unstable kind of behavior that seems to have been pretty much characteristic of her throughout her life. She has an older son who's I think who's like in his mid to late teens at this point from her first marriage, I believe. Molten is one of her married names from a mm-hmm. different I think it's one of her married names, or maybe it's her maiden name. Or maybe she just um, made it up. <laughs> yeah, no, she and she she was also basically, and again, this is no Right. Yeah. She was adopted. She was adopted um, by the her her was parents. Was she a bodybuilder or something? Yeah, she had been. Oh, yeah, she was. Yeah. And this was part <laughs> of that. that, that, well, that means part, yeah, that was a part of an episode several years before where she intensively got into bodybuilding and apparently was taking a lot of steroids and stuff, and her behavior became very erratic. And then she mm. went into one. She went to one competition and got in fourth place, and then she immediately dropped it. Hmm. And, and 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 people who knew her at the time thought it was strange that she got so intensive, obsessively interested in bodybuilding. There's some people that get and and but then, then she didn't win. and then totally dropped it. You know, and that was the one competition. So, anyways, so she had been married twice before. Um, the story with Kane and Desiree, they got married, and the way. Terry describes it as she had been a friend of Desiree hmm. since before she even knew Kane. And then Kane and Desiree got divorced when Kyron was very, very young. Hmm. Terry said that she began helping Kane take care of Kyron. And in the process, she and Kane fell in love. They got married. And she more or less 
raised Chiron. Desiree, the birth mother, had a major health issue. She had some sort of kidney ailment or something that early on made it very difficult for her to take care of Chiron. So once that once Cain and Terry got married, she basically allowed them to have sole custody of mm-hmm. Chiron. Now, this is something that people who, who are supporters of Terry say casts a kind of strange pall oh, over Desiree, she, yeah. because why would she give why up? Why would any mother give up? Right. Yeah. But yeah. I also want to say it was on the Dr. Phil interview, because once Terry did a recent, and by recent I mean in the past year, interview with People magazine on air, you know, with their true crime show, and then did a bunch of other interviews. And on the Dr. Phil she was on, I think it was a two-parter, Dr. Phil, and I haven't watched the whole thing. It was either on that or somewhere else that I saw that actually, and I don't know if she has confirmed this or not, but she and Kane were having an affair right, right. Right. when yeah. Desiree was pregnant with Kyron. Yes. Yeah, that's what Desiree says. And yes. I don't know if Kane's. Yeah, I think, I don't yeah know that's right. It was Desiree who said yeah. it. Yeah, Kane is kind of not a big hero in this whole no, thing. No, no. He's clearly pretty. Yeah, he sounds like he's a serial adulterer and all kinds of stuff but um but she uh yeah so but yeah so terry's account puts herself in this much more kind of innocent light in any case she really raised chiron and terry did and desiree and she had desiree says she was never really friends with terry she mm. kind of knew the family but was never a close friend of hers mm. and then and desiree says it was in fact terry that kane had an affair with while she was yes. pregnant with chiron yeah. and that okay. was and in fact it was that affair that was right. the kind of precipitating event that led yeah, to their divorce so and, and no so they she, live in medford i think yeah so how far is that from medford Portland? is a good nearly five hour drive Explain why she didn't see a lot of Kyron. Right. And uh, and she did there were there were revisits, you know, yes. there were arranged visits. So she yeah. so Kyron did go down um to Medford to visit on a regular basis. Uh, Terry talks about how he didn't want to go. And you know, and you know Sorry. so no, Desiree no, says Kyron was always really upset when he had to, go back. to go back. And you know, <laughs> it sounds like and, and Kane says, Well, he just didn't like to go back and forth and he liked both his It was moms a long and, car ride. You know, it was a long <laughs> car ride, yeah. And so I'm trying to remember if there's anything else. Yeah, so that's pretty much the situation. Apparently in the months before Kyron's disappearance, the I think his name is James, the the older son of Terry, lived with them, according to his account in the Oregonian when he was interviewed after the disappearance, he got along fine with Kane, his uh, stepfather, and it sounds, Terry made it sound as though he and Kane, the stepfather, did not get along, and so she had to send James back to his own father. James made it sound more like he and his mom had issues. She was, he says, very strict and very controlling, mm-hmm. and things just weren't going well between the two of them, and she suggested it might be better for him to go and live with mm-hmm. his, his dad. So, so all these kind of complicated relationships that are kind Maybe of Maybe she just wanted subject. to obsessively focus on their new baby. That's uh, uh, ultimately, Desiree makes that argument. Oh! That what, that what is going on with Terry, that she's a pretty devoted mom to Chiron and her older son, James, until the baby daughter is born, mm. the toddler, Kira, I think is her name. And that once Kira is born... Yeah, everything's got a K. I once Kira is born, Terry is obsessively focused on that 
toddler and her other, you know, one stepson and then her older biological son are kind of a distraction and she's just kind of loses interest in both of them and Hmm. sees and begins to resent Chiron as a kind of drain on her attention and and resources when she wanted to, when she wanted to focus exclusively on the toddler. And so Desiree basically sets this up as basically kind of a kind of motive. And eventually, as we'll see, I think it's not until about as much as a year or so later, Desiree basically comes out overtly and says that she, she thinks Terry is responsible for And I just want to clarify before we get too much farther that when I was poo-pooing her with the fussy toddler earlier, it wasn't the driving around thing, which I know people do, but taking a fussy teething toddler into with her to the gym yeah. and to the, into, know. didn't yeah. she, cause she went to one Fred Meyers and it didn't have the medicine she needed for the kids. So she went to another yeah. Fred Meyers yeah. and all this kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. I remember and that, yeah. I'm not a mom, but I just huh. wonder how much you're going to log, how much you're going to want to go to the gym with the teething would, fussy toddler going to the gym when you're, tr- when you had just been trying to drive her around and get her to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, okay. I'm sorry. All right. Yes. Yeah, so on Sunday, June 13th, the sheriff's office, office announces that the massive search for Karen has ended and the case has been shifted to a criminal investigation. Mm. Um, the search, which went on for over 10 days, was one of the largest in state history with more than 1,300 people from Oregon, Washington, and Northern California wow. looking for the boy in all these multiple agencies. Um, however, search continues. Um, so that's not actually the real end of the search, but the right, kind of math that yeah, yeah, is scaled yeah, back. Yeah. And the investigation also is scaled back. With the large-scale search ended, the Multnomah um, County Sheriff's Office sends divers again to to Savi Island to search there. I think this may be the first time, actually, we got ahead of ourselves earlier, that this is where they really begin to to search Savi Island for the reasons we have stated. That the pings on her cell phone indicated she was driving around Wasn't there, and maybe you're getting to this, but I'm remembering something to do with a nursery on Savi Island that she or her friend... No, that that nursery is not... I'll get to that, and it's not on Savi Island, so... Never so mind. the Multnomah County Sheriff's releases a photo of a pair of glasses that are just like the type Kyron was wearing for informational purposes, but then a, on the blogosphere. People thought they found, people his, thought glasses. They found his glasses in it, you know. Yeah, um, and the school the school year ends that day, Tuesday, June 15th at uh, Skyline. There's a dive team spotted on the property near uh, on a property near the Horman home where they're searching a pond and they say oh it's just routine but Mm. so the school year ends clear channel begin you know which is this big media empire has begun to put up picture big huge billboards all over the place with Kyron's picture and information and multiple languages about who to contact if they have any information and everything and then the sheriff's office releases a flyer on june 18th friday asking parents and kids about june 4th the flyer has photos of Kyron. Terry Moulton Horman and a picture of a pickup similar to the one she was driving <laughs> that day it was a white pickup. And some people see this as that they see her as suspicious. Others that, well, they just want people to eliminate, you know, this is what the stepmom looked like. This is the vehicle she was driving. Did mm. you see something other than that yeah. that was suspicious? Not, did you see this Did you see this pickup woman, with this woman and this child? child later, after. many, long, long time later in her, fairly recent, it was just last year, Dr. Phil Appearance, Terry Moulton, as she now goes by, said that she saw some suspicious guy. Oh, please. Loitering around and that he drove a white pickup. And, mm, you know, yeah, and, sure um, he did. And by the way, that day also on social media, there were all these rumors that Kyron's body had been found and the sheriff dispelled those rumors. Mm. A friend of Terry Horman tells the Oregonian that she'll go through a second polygraph that on Saturday. So the, this is an interesting thing that I'm going to get back to in a minute. Friday, June 25th, early morning, Desiree Young and her ex- ex-husband Kane Horman appear on four network morning shows to talk about 
their son Chiron and announce new details. This is where they first, for the first time, reveal that Cain, the father, was working at home that afternoon and also met the boys' bus. Oh, yeah, um, I just remembered. Yeah, yeah. and... Um, yeah. And that Saturday, June 26, the first of two 911 calls were made from the Horman residence off of Northwest Sheltered Nook Road. Mm, um, the first call came in. Road. The first call came in as a in quotes threat call, and a sheriff's deputy responded at 11:39. A second call was made. The call was classified as a quote custody issue. At some point that day, Kane Horman moved out of the family home, taking his 19-month-old daughter with him. Ooh. In the ensuing Monday, there was a big People magazine that had yeah, this big yeah, profile yeah. that appeared. You know, it, it, it interviewed Terry's parents where they talk about oh she's been interviewed she's been given polygraph tests and oh they're harassing her and it's so horrible i remember reading it at the time and i came away with even if it was sympathetic to terry i still thought she was guilty well one of the things they asked the father if they thought his daughter would be arrested and he replied with tears in his eyes it's a 50 50 so so that afternoon uh, that afternoon um kane horman it's reported in the news media that kane horman had moved out of the family's northwest portland home and taken the daughter and that Terry Horman is approached and she said no everything's fine and everything's good it's just a rumor but that evening of June 28th uh, the sheriff's department releases a statement saying that Kane Desiree and her husband Tony were cooperating with the investigation no mention is made of Terry Um, and then it turns (laughs) out news media has got a tip off that Terry has been served with a restraining order and a petition for dissolution of the marriage you know instigated by Kane Horman what had happened was among other things who knows what else went on in that house but law enforcement had been informed by a man who had been hired, apparently had been hired, or so he claimed, had been hired by Terry to do landscape work at the Horman home. Kane Horman apparently never knew about this guy, which is in and of itself suspicious. Mm. Whether he actually ended up doing any landscaping work at the home I've never been made, has never been made clear. But he claimed, he went to law enforcement and claimed that Terry asked him to kill Cain. Mm. Several months uh, before, yeah. several months before the disappearance. Yeah. Trim those bushes, plant some roses. Oh, and can you kill my husband? And the uh, way, and what she said uh, to him was that he would get ten thousand dollars because Cain. Now this is all coming from the man himself, right? right? right. That Cain carried routinely carried about ten thousand dollars in cash on his person, and that he could kill. He looks like he would. Yeah, yeah he could kill Cain take the money and it would just look like a robbery gone bad Mm. and this guy said basically he kind of tried to cut off any communication with her in the aftermath but then when all this disappearance stuff came up he went to law enforcement law enforcement actually wired him got him to recontact her to try and get something incriminating Mm. and nothing came of it nothing ever does she apparently she probably also she probably this guy if it was true in fact this guy recontacts her you know in the midst of all this publicity and she clearly I think knew something was up so whether she was whether this story was true or not you know you can read it either way Um, want the money up front when somebody wants you to kill someone yeah at least some of it don't say oh he's got it on him so kill him and just take the I'd money off like, him. yeah yeah, yeah. No, so so she so we don't know whether that's really true she of course always claims that this was a totally bogus story kane and others think, think it's, it was genuine and in, in any case no charges ensue that can't really prove that it really happened mm-hmm. but in the meantime then as july uh, you know plays out kane asked the judge to make terry move out of the, his house which apparently it's in his name uh, he also instigates 
divorce proceedings, which claim that Terry, in the aftermath, I believe, of the disappearance, had and started a sexual relationship with one of Kane's high school friends, mm-hmm. when, in which she shared legal information, and and where she proposed to this uh, buddy of his that she started an affair with that they try to kidnap her daughter who Kane had in custody. Ah, yeah. Um, ultimately what happens is she's forced to leave the house. She goes and moves down with her parents in Southern Oregon. Years later, finally a divorce is completed. Um, she does eventually get years later gets, you know, uh, supervised visits with, with so he retains sole custody. As far as I know, to this day, she is allowed to see the daughter Kira, who's now what, you know, seven or eight years old herself yeah. now, under supervision. One of the things that happens in the meantime is that she petitions to delay the divorce proceedings because of the investigation. And that, in fact, does seem to actually delay the divorce proceedings for several years. And I don't think, I think it's not until like something like 2014 or something that the divorce is made final. Now, and that's the affair, right, that on the Dr. Phil show, he, Dr. Phil brought up that there was some pretty... There was some sexting, and this was maybe three or four weeks after Kyron disappeared. Right. That was so dirty that Dr. Phil couldn't even show the text yeah, on yeah, the yeah, show. Yeah, right, right, yeah. That, I don't, see, I don't understand them. sexting. I don't either. Yeah. But, but so she the, just says it was she just says it was sexting and there was no physical relationship. And that she was, you know, in grief and trauma and also, and, and also Kane had yeah, been cheating on I her. Kane had been cheating on her. So she was so trying so to get I, back at Kane. You know, blah, but all blah, blah. this is happening in the immediate aftermath of this kid's disappearance. Right, and and there was one you know? funny line in that show, that Doctor Phil show, where she said something like, You can't make this stuff up and Doctor Phil goes, Well actually you can <laughs> Yes, exactly. That's <laughs> great. Yeah, um, but anyway. So Wednesday, July 21st, Maxine Bernstein of the Oregonian reveals that law enforcement officials have been putting pressure on a small circle of friends of Terry mm. Moulton Horman, including 43-year-old D.D. Spiker. I'm not a, Spicer. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce her name. Investigators searched Spiker's condominium in Tualatin, a, a suburb of Portland, interviewed people who saw Spiker on June 4th, the day Kyron disappeared. As Spiker was a presence at the Horman house after Kyron's father, Kane Horn, moved out and filed for divorce and issued his restraining order against Terry. She'd also have been seen driving Terry to and from her attorney's office in downtown Portland. She's not the first person who assisted Terry Horman in the weeks after the investigation and the disappearance, but she had played a particularly interesting role. And the reason why she was being looked at was that um, the reports were that she, well, they know for sure she had been working at a house in northwest Portland on Germantown Road, which is in the immediate area near the school and near the Horman residence. It's part of that whole neighborhood I described earlier. People who are working with her claimed that now this house is on a 32 acre property. So it's a large property. Um, They ran a kind of nursery that was not a retail nursery, but was by appointment. So it's a big, beautiful property with a beautiful garden and number of people working on it. And one of her co-workers claimed that she left the house about 1130 and didn't return until about 90 minutes later. Another person working at the home actually called her in for lunch around that time, and she never answered. And the homeowner called her around during that time period on her cell phone, and she wasn't reachable. Mm. Detectives questioned her about that. The suspicion apparently was that she had somehow been contacted by Terry and was helping her do something. Now, in all the investigation, apparently she was subjected to several polygraph tests. Nothing ever seemingly came of that. This 
Dee Dee claimed later that she had never actually left the property. Mm. Um, and I don't know if they ever found any mm, substantial evidence. Stuff. that Yeah, it's a big property, so who knows. Um, but she was one of these people who had really been helping Terry in the aftermath. So just to kind of, I'll just kind of wind it up a little bit and just, just say that there are a number of, you know, shows that were broadcast during this time period as the summer kind of faded, went into July and August. And there was a number of new, like, announcements by the sheriff's office where Desiree Young and Kane and stepdad were there, but not Terry. Um, it, be, it, can, it, it becomes pretty clear that over the course of the summer, Terry is the, an object of the greatest mm. suspicion. You know, eventually there is a grand jury convened at, or at Multnomah County Circuit Court. Subpoenas, all the family members, they all testify. I'm looking here to see Was the Terry. grand jury that summer? I think it might not have been that summer, but it might have been by the fall. Ground searches and other searches continue, and they begin to search around that Germantown Road uh, residence. Uh, so, in fact, there are intermittently over the years, there are been continual searches. Um, Sabi Island is revisited by as late as November that year, where they do, you know, suddenly they're like, you know, All researching there. Seems like change of seasons. Up. If there's a if there's a body or something, they're looking for a lot of times. There's less when, the, when they show up, like right, less leaves, less foliage, animals, animals one of the, are around. Yeah. yeah, one of the things they're doing in August is that they're putting out more pictures of the Horman family truck, that white pickup, and <laughs> asking people for information if they saw that truck and where during that day of the disappearance. So a number of things like that um, happen. By late August, Kane Horman and Desiree Young are describing Terry um, and that she had big behavior changes starting in 2005 mm. and is kind of a mass of contradictions and behavioral problems. So th- I think I should just wind up um, and mention a few things that have happened since then. Ultimately, what happens is there's a scaled-down search, but inter- over the years, intermittently renewed searching. The case is still open. I don't think it's a closed case um, in any sense of the word. Kane, I'm not exactly sure what's been happening with him, except he continues to make announcements. He and the biological mother every anniversary, we just had one earlier this month, you know, kind of continue to put out statements, you know, that they still hope for the finding of Kane. Yeah, I have a, an account here that as late as January of 2011, they were searching Southie Island again. And, you know, th- as I said... So they must really feel... I wonder if it's just the foam pings or if there's something else. There seems to me that they're... They and every time they did they that, know. they said that they've got new leads. And so, to my mind, there's something going on. There's some information they're acting on that they can't make public for whatever reason. And how, um, you said Sabi Island is, uh, you said it's rural. Is it woodsy, too? Or uh, it, somewhat, yeah. but it's got a lot of farmland. I mean, it's not really heavily forested. Yeah. But what it is, is it's, you know, surrounded by the Columbia River. Yeah. Uh, you know, which is a pretty high-volume fast-moving yeah, river, yeah, um, yeah. and so there's beach area and, and places where you're, it's e- the river is easily accessible all around the yeah. island. So if she put him in the water, yeah, he could uh, Yeah, and he Pacific, could be out in the Pacific, Pacific Ocean. Ocean. He could have, yeah. you know, the body could be Poor as far as Japan, yeah. you know. In 2012, two years after the disappearance, uh, Desiree Young filed a lawsuit against Terry that contended that Terry was the person responsible for kidnapping the boy and asked the judge to compel her to to give information or produce a body. And that lawsuit continued for, I think, at least two years. And ultimately, Desiree Young ended the lawsuit because law enforcement told her it could possibly impede Uh, the investigation. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they continue to issue 
age-adjusted photo, you know, pictures of Chiron, what he would look like now. And a couple things have happened fairly recently. Uh, one of the things that happened in 2014 is Terry Moulton Horman requested a name change. Uh, she went to court to say that she wanted to change her name to Claire Stella Sullivan, and she cited the stigma of the case and her inability to find a job. Or if she is indeed innocent, it's really sad, you yes. know, that she she's but dogged then again, by. She could move out of state, and the yeah, name but easier said than well, that's easier said. Her anything. whole support system is her oh, parents, yeah, right. and also it's easy to Google someone if they're yeah. applying for a job. Yeah, um, but it's not an uncommon. Um, ultimately, there was a kind of public outcry against this, and she ultimately dropped her petition. Wow, a public outcry to... She does go by Terry Moulton now and, I, and I'm sorry, I can't remember if that's her maiden name or if yeah. that's a former married name. You will be name. forced to um, carry that name mm-hmm. as your punishment. Well, another thing that happened in 2015 is that it was reported, um, it's sad that in a sense that news was leaked if, again as if she's innocent of having but still, anything. She landed a job as a caregiver in Eugene with a company called Shangri-La Corporation which provides residential care for adults suffering from mental illness. They knew she was up front about who she was. Yeah. They felt she was qualified. They in fact said that in the few weeks that she worked there that she did a good job um, but she finally left. Wasn't quite sure if they asked her to leave or she on her own volition left because that's publicity around the fact that she was working Someone for this out. facility. Yeah. Um, it was reported in the news that she was working for them, apparently created such well, a she's problem. She's got herself somehow. That, yeah, I yeah. Know. she does. Um, it was, some things have happened recently with her. Uh, at various points, she was living in Southern Oregon, um, and then it seems like recently she moved to Northern California. In the recent years, since about 2015 or so, a boyfriend, a current boyfriend, issued restraining orders against her, uh, claiming domestic violence and saying he was feared for his life. Mm-hmm. Not sure what ended up with, happening with that. She was also, I think in the last two years, charged with illegal possession of a gun, mm-hmm. which she apparently stole from some place mm-hmm. where she was visiting. Uh, she was visiting uh, some people, some friends or something, mm-hmm. and stole the gun. <laughs> yeah. um, she was also just, this was just, I think, a few months ago, she was found in possession of a stolen vehicle in the San Francisco area. Yeah. Um, and so she's had a number of these. Maybe she's then, spiraling out of control because of the... Yeah, so one the way you can, one way you can read it publicity. One way yeah. you can read it is that she may have had nothing to do with Karen's disappearance, but all the negative publicity, yeah. the fact that most people suspect her, she the fact that she there were signs in her past that she never was a particularly stable person. She can't get a regular job and all this stuff, um, and that she's acting out. Or you, for some people, it's like indicates that she is, is you know, spiraling. Or also that she's always has the has had the capacity right. to commit crimes and act in illegal and even violent ways, mm-hmm. and that should be factored into how suspicious her activity is. The most bizarre thing that has come to light just in the last month or so is that. In 2011, information about this was just revealed, but going back to 2011, this old boyfriend from 30 years ago, I thought that he came forward and and this story was bogus, but it turns out law enforcement approached this boyfriend. So this is about a year after the disappearance of Chiron and the police approach this old boyfriend of hers from like 25 years before and they say are you aware that we have someone in jail now who is claiming that you you know Terry Horman 25 years ago tried to get him to kill you and 
he said, well, there was this strange thing that happened. <laughs> when they were going up, they had they were e- they were having a picnic in a park near her parents' house in um, I guess it was in Medford, and Southern Oregon. And this guy comes out of the bushes with a gun, and she says he's coming for you. And then the guy just kind of runs off and doesn't do anything. And he thought this was really bizarre. And I guess it seems like he interpreted her statement as like. Watch, watch out. out! Watch yeah. out! Yeah. And, but what the police say is this is attempted assassination. He's coming this for you. Yeah, I can't remember what this, way. the guy why. who was apparently carrying the gun, you know, is in jail all these years later, seeing all this stuff and seeing pictures of Terry, <laughs> and says, "Hey, that was this hey, girl. She was about 19 at the time. She tried to pay me to kill her boyfriend, and I never went through with it. And then the old boyfriend's guy. So apparently, oh, the so the sheriff, you know, the the that this possible, <laughs> there's no statute of limitations on murder attempts in Oregon. Um, mm. So apparently, I'll the, keep that in mind. The <laughs> prosecutor in Southern Oregon, I think it's the Roseburg Sheriff's Office and everything, are investigating this. And the guy, you know, the the news report is only about a month or so old. I wonder if she but, used the old. He has ten thousand dollars in his pocket. <laughs> right, right. I know. Well, he said he said he's known about this since 2011 when law enforcement alerted him to it. And he said, as far as he knows, the investigation is ongoing, but no charges has been filed against her. Why he's did it just come out? Because um, he's frustrated, so he decided. Uh, maybe to go to I'm the not press. sure what the origins of the news report are, but it, but it was not reported in 2011. Yeah. It wasn't reported How until weird. about a month ago. It is. And it also gives more credence to the landscaper who said that right. she tried to get him to right. cocaine. And also, as I said, when I what? first saw the headline, I'm like, oh, this is an old boyfriend who, for some reason, decided to claim, hey, you know, because he okay. saw that landscaper story yeah and but then when when i read the story it was law enforcement who That's went to the weird. boyfriend to say that there's this like, guy in jail and why would she just really want to kill someone like, why would you yeah want and you just really want to have someone killed like, yeah no. there's no story like what it's easier why breaking she, up with him <laughs> the news story doesn't mention any possible motive but that's an interesting thing and then the last thing i just want to note is that just recently in the oregonian it's been reported or actually i should say the um, one of the news stations reported that new documents and interviews this is a quote suggest there's increased activities surrounding the investigation into horman's 2010 disappearance the multnomah county sheriff's office is quietly coordinating ground searches detectives are analyzing new computer evidence and a grand jury remains impaneled in the horman case and is apparently Wow. continually getting wow. new information. So, so this is by no means a closed case. And mm. apparently activity and new information is uh, act, being acted upon according to news accounts. So um, do you want to talk strange. a little about it for just a minute about what went on with the sheriff of Multnomah County? Yeah. Um, so they mentioned Dan Satin, who was the longtime sheriff of Multnomah County. He retired just last year under a real cloud of um, a number of contentions. His tenure as sheriff was dogged by various scandals, including potential corruption, Staten's apparently undue influence to help out various friends of his who got into trouble. One was a law enforcement official who um, last year was in Eastern Oregon on some sort of trip with a bunch of his buddies who also were involved in law enforcement and he ended up shooting one of the friends they were sitting around <laughs> they were shooting sitting around the campfire apparently shooting at squirrels and this guy i can't remember if he was a deputy or what he shot one of the other friends around <laughs> and at first the the friend apparently was pressured to make it sound like it was just an accident 
you know, it wasn't, he didn't know who the, sh- the shot came from. They're all sitting around <laughs> shooting at squirrels. But apparently Stanton actually tried to use his influence to cover up this story mm-hmm. and get make sure that this guy wasn't investigated. I can't remember all the details now. And also um, allegations of sexual harassment in the sheriff's office no. and a number of things. Mm-hmm. And he finally retired, but it was his time as sheriff, especially in the latter years, um, leading up to his retirement, were quite troubled. And a number of people have wondered if the investigation of Kyron Horman, which was by far the most Big. high profile, mm-hmm. biggest inve- investigation his office was involved with while he was sheriff, um, whether that the the investigation could have suffered from the fact that this it sounds like the sheriff's office was much less functional was you know having yeah. various problems throughout the time that this investigation mm. would have been taken us nothing nothing specific that really relates to the Kyron Horman it just kind of people wondering right. you know if well, the sheriff's office of is in is if all this crap is going on and Stanton himself is not the stellar law enforcement official people may have thought at the time um, could that have been a problem right, for the investigation it, it affects how the department works and ultimately how it would investigate things yeah. and who knows what else. To me, this whole case really points out the fact that, you know, you have to have evidence. We are in a system, and it's a good good that we have a system where you really have to have kind of concrete evidence to um, yeah. indict someone yeah, for well, a crime. Yeah, well, it sounds like a lot, just Ayla like Ayla Ayla And, and yeah. you, you know, to my mind, Terry Moulton Horman, you know, she now goes by Terry Moulton, has, in, in multiple ways, you know, cast suspicion on herself because of her behavior and activity. And and the bottom line is that she's never really accounted in a credible way for her movements on, yeah, the, day, yeah. on the day of Kyron's disappearance. Mm-hmm. Um, things that she said on Dr. Phil where she claims to have seen a suspicious character mm-hmm. lurking around right. um, with, who also drove a Which white she pickup. didn't tell anyone about at the time. Right. Uh, none of that. Shit. Yeah, it doesn't have the credibility of because it's, you know, no one can confirm it. Her own actions, you know, if that was, if there's some weirdo lurking around the school, why didn't she alert the principal? Right, why first of all, right, you, you tell know, somebody and you and don't watch your little boy walk alone down the hallway well, into... I'm What I'm amazed about is that she, if she is guilty, that she was able to to leave the school with him, which I'm assuming is what happened, without anybody seeing. And that's the main thing, is that she was with all those people around. I know, you know, it's busy with all those people around, but at the same time, you my, think somebody would have noticed. My guess is, first of all, car. that my guess is, first of all, that she had told them he had a doctor's appointment. And, and she just said, and no, so nobody, no, but all, right. And also that with the science fair going on, and I think I read somewhere the science fair went from eight to 10, and there are a lot of parents there and stuff like that. And there was a lot of movement, and it's kind of a purloined letter thing. Yeah. If you just if you just walk out with the kid, nobody is even going to notice yeah, that right. really normal behavior. Yeah. Somebody would notice more a strange man grabbing Kyron yes, yes, yes. than his or stepmom. Or a kid by himself walking right. away from right. the school. And it's also yeah. the kind of thing, if his stepmother is walking away with him, it's not going to no. stick in anyone's yeah, mind that it's true. suspicious. If you yeah. act normal, you know... The the thing too is she I think her the first interview she had given publicly in years and years was the one for the People magazine TV show like maybe about a year ago and then she did Doctor Phil right, and she's yeah. done uh, so she's done a bunch of shows since maybe it's because she can't since she can't get a job she figures she might as well 
own it or maybe some yeah. of those shows pay people to be on i don't know they probably do some of them i don't i don't think dr phil does and i don't think dateline does but other ones may but one thing this always makes me think if she is guilty and i was talking to you liz about this earlier and i'm sure i talked about it on our ayla episode three ayla reynolds episode is that it's very rare we all know what happens but it's very rare for a stranger to abduct yes, a kid yes, right the yeah. huge huge majority of child disappearances are known people and family members but because of the way the 24-hour news cycle and Nancy Grace and all this kind well, of stuff. there's a public perception that's otherwise, right? right? right. The public that's perception what I'm say. is that this is right. an ever-present right. threat. And, so and that happens that's a lot. Right. People yeah. don't even let their kids walk to school or go down the block to play right. on the playground and all that stuff we did when we were kids. So when somebody does something when, like fact, this... the crime rate was a lot higher. Right, yeah, I, know. I know. When we were kids. And we were in a lot more danger than kids are now. But but then when somebody does something like this, if it's not Terry Horman it's some, or Justin DePietro, Ayla Reynolds' father... It seems like because of this perception that this is just happening all the time and kids are in danger everywhere, that they just think, I'll just say he was abducted or she was abducted, and they're going to believe me because it happens so often. And what they don't realize is what happens more often is what they did. Right, right. You know, and they're immediately going to be the focus, especially if they can't account for And I remember us talking at the time when you were talking about her friend, that we almost, and then I saw a body language person on here today that made remind me of it, and I'll yeah, maybe I'll we should talk what, a little bit about that. that yeah. Terry did something to Kyron, but then went to the gym as her alibi and had Dee Dee oh, somehow dispose of the body. Uh, and I saw yeah. a body language expert on some show when I was going around on YouTube today, and I can't remember which one it was talking. And I think it was a local Portland, Oregon news station. She's watching an interview, a very recent interview of Terry, where you know she touches her nose and she goes, it was "Well, the that doctor Phil appearance." Did, in fact, she, yeah, she was watching. She was watching the doctor Phil appearance, but then she said that Terry seemed truthful from whatever the body language sign were and everything when she said she didn't know what happened to him. And I'm like, oh, that reminds me of when we talked about she did something to him, but then somehow got her friend, who knows, maybe it was a double indemnity thing, yeah, well, to the, dispose of the body. So she would say, be telling the truth. If her she, friend, yeah. might, the other possibility would be her friend helped her without realizing what she was yes. getting rid oh, of. Oh, can you just take this Rubbermaid container that well, weighs about there might have been 30 some pounds? Well, w- way that she got her friend to help her. And after the fact said, okay, you're going to be, right. you're going to prison now because you, you're the one that did it, you know, yeah. so, yeah. and there's no proof that I had anything to do and with so it. And so her friend was like her slave for life. Yeah. 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 So what were you going to say about the body language? Oh, yeah. Stuff? So, um, so then when I revisited that press conference that happened on June 11th after the disappearance where, where the, the stepdad where and the dad everyone. and she's hugging everything, I, that's where I noticed because the analysis on the local TV report by a body language expert of her Dr. Phil appearance right. of last year, she noted the, the touching of the nose. And so the first thing I noticed when I looked at it, and, <laughs> and I don't remember seeing, I haven't looked at that news conference since like when it first yeah, came right. on TV or when I saw it replayed on the Nancy Grace show um, right. that week that the kid disappeared. And there she is touching her nose, touching her nose. And I'm thinking, And Man. she wasn't even talking she at the news talking, conference, but she was just but it, so But the weird. stepdad and the dad so were weird. talking. To look for and, um, I know. And so I 
think I mentioned I, I've been on that property when they were describing it. The 32 acre. Yeah, I realized that the, either that spring or the spring before, it might have been that spring, just about a month before the disappearance, that I got, had gone on a garden tour. And I realized when I heard the, dis- they never gave the actual address, but if they said it was this German town, but through the description, oh, I realized I had tour. been there. Yeah. Um, and and it's did this, you see any little mound of dirt? That was no, <laughs> uh, but it was this beautiful modernistic house with this beautiful garden, and they had a greenhouse and with a sign that said sales of nursery plants by appointment only. Um, so they were kind of, and I realized in the descriptions that that was oh, the property so where Dee Dee Spiker, if that's the way you say her name, was, uh, was and, working. Because, I, I mean, it just And fit. if you can dig up those photos, we can put them on our website. Yeah, I know. And they the, I am well, my the old. the other thing I wanted to say about uh, the two, the friend, there's a lot of times you'll see in crimes where where it's two people involved. One person is a very dominant, controlling yeah, person. Yeah, she sounds and like And they she hook is. up with somebody who's like their little puppy that will, will do their bidding yeah yeah and that sounds like and when i read the article i don't know if there was only one in people but i've read other articles about them that made me feel like that that was uh, the dynamic between the two right and and sociopaths and psychopaths are good at picking out Mm -hmm. the people they can manipulate because they're very good at pushing people's buttons and manipulating people and so they're they're good at finding the follower and, you know. Yeah, yeah that's great. I hadn't even really thought of that mm-hmm. as an explanation of why she could truthfully say. Right. Um, well, another thing I didn't really get into too much is apparently um, Terry, in the course of the investigation that summer, underwent several polygraph tests. Now, I think some of this information comes from Disarray. <laughs> But the law enforcement never contradicted it, and I'm not, you know, so I don't know if any of this information came directly from law enforcement. Um, I don't think they ever talked about it. They don't. Yeah, they don't. So, but, but according to Desiree, so this is maybe not a credible source, she failed, Terry failed the first two and then walked out of the third. And and Terry's never actually, she apparently talks about that in the Dr. Phil show, and she doesn't deny, but she yeah. said there were these very reasons well, why. There was one, and I heard this on something I saw on YouTube today, that she claimed, and I think one was inconclusive, or both were inconclusive rather than fail. I can't remember, but she said she was deaf in one ear, and so it threw it off. But the thing is, they don't just sit you down and st- they know, like for instance in the Ayla Reynolds case, the mom, Trista Reynolds, never took a polygraph because she was on medication and stuff. Mm. And so they have all these things. Like if she was well, deaf in one ear and that was going to affect the polygraph, <laughs> they, they wouldn't have given it to her. Yeah. But yeah, the third one, apparently she made the appointment and she was going and then she got there and decided she wasn't going to do it and left. I'm not, I, I think polygraphs, I mean, I they understand. They can be problematic. I understand they're a tool that's used. I think they're manipulative and, tool, and, and I don't, yeah, I don't think, yeah. the results aren't worth shit as far as I'm concerned. No, you can't I use them in court. they're so just a way to rattle somebody and think that if, so I don't know They're how a way for the cops to kind of throw in somebody's face you. and yeah. manipulate people. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you. you know, sociopaths and psychopaths, there are, I mean, that's it's it. been they're known the, that there are people who have done horrible crimes who Past, right? Because they're they're practiced liars, and they can, and they won't have to the extent that a polygraph can genuinely record the Mm -hmm. indicators that of a normal person lying, and to the extent that those things are credible, sociopath doesn't have those. No, I think her touching her nose is a much more reliable. I know. I I, I feel like according to our expert opinion, she. I feel like if she is innocent, she's extremely unlucky. But if she is mm. innocent, why can't she say, 
no matter what she was doing that day, yeah, okay, I'm a heroin addict and I went to buy some heroin. Or, oh, yeah, I was fooling around with or some I guy. Went, I went to screw around with that buddy of my husband that right. I was having the affair with, and yeah, I left the toddler in the car while I was doing it. I mean, why can't Although she Although then he would say, have to back up. Like, why uh, can't she yeah. account for right, where exactly. she was? Don't protect anyone else. Protect yourself. Yeah, I can't believe that after all this time, with the amount of suspicion seem... aimed at her, that she, if there was some explanation of what she was doing and why there are these gaps that are in, in, in effect most of the day until yes. until she until King came home from work at 2 p.m. and she was already at home or when she was at home and she posted those fa- who knows even what she was doing I mean just because right. she pasted to Facebook doesn't mean she was actually even really home at that point no, she um, had one of the first smartphones yeah I don't yeah of course it was yeah, 2010 so the technology but, no um, iPhones started in 2008 so oh that's yeah, right they did you know. yes you know so that to me is the most suspicious thing that she's never accounted and, and anything he, that in the immediate aftermath of disappearance she may have been unwilling to reveal because it made her look bad or, or would endanger her marriage and everything those things are all water on the bridge right now. and yeah. also I when know. you watch her interviews like on dr phil and other places her explanations are such bullshit it's not like you listen and you say oh yeah okay i can see that that yeah. makes sense now that i'm hearing her say it no it's like you listen to it and granted maybe some of this is with the prejudice we have her explanations just sound like bullshit. Like, like she's just full of shit. Do you yeah. ever think about your own? Like, if you were arrested for All something, the time. and like, okay, yeah, you know, what if they made me account for my day? Okay, I sat on the couch for yeah. about two hours. <laughs> yeah. I used to right. think about that a lot yeah. when I lived alone. Like, okay, how would I prove? Yeah, that I was. Just I thought that too. But sitting I'm like, on my, well, my porch, neighbors would have seen my car sitting up. My neighbors spend the summer at their camp. How do I prove I was sitting on the porch reading a book? At least All now day. they have the now they do have cell phone pings, so they at least yes. know your phone. Although phone. some of that ping technology, Sometimes, and I don't want to throw a wrench into this, is being called into question. Yes, yes, because like, like if there's that, a lot of stuff pinging off one, it'll go to yeah. another one. But I think the amount of pings, like at Salvi yeah. Island, well, also I think they had. Yeah, I think they had case. more information. I'm sure yeah, I think there was more than just that. They don't tell us everything. So, but that's good. And you got a lot of your stuff from the Oregonian. Most of it, I got. Timeline yeah. on there that we'll post to our website. Yeah, when and, I get um, yeah. when I get that stuff updated. So I, I mean, to yeah. me, it's the irony, especially since you were just uh, had that news oh, story yeah. about this poor guy who apparently you know sold a cashew oh, to, a, to a police officer and you know got him. You know, to me, it's the irony of um, how some people can get away with yes. possibly committing murder, and because there's not really concrete evidence against them, they can't. They have not yet been able to indict them, yeah. even though for all appearances, it seems like they prioritize the well, situation. The, and I think other the people, justice system is working better when somebody like Terry Horman or Justin DiPietro yeah. isn't arrested or charged because there just should because be. everybody yeah. in the world and on the blogosphere and on yeah. cable TV and podcasts and everything thinks they're innocent. Yeah, right. Or thinks they're guilty. I, that's right. Thinks they're guilty. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> Doesn't mean... They are. Yes. That's not everybody's opinion isn't evidence. Exactly. That's exactly. Right. And that's the moral. And a of our chunk story. of crack cocaine should be evidence, but right. because he was a black guy and the cop went up and, and a black guy with a record, you know, and but yeah, but yeah, still but the still, cop went up yeah. and said, "Can I buy some drugs?" And, and the guy didn't know he was a cop. This and is said, the problem too. The war, that war and drugs, like I said last yeah. week, and the, the Duke and episode. What an 
How about a waste of resources? How about and take all the resources to the war on drugs and put them towards trying to not only catch people who kill kids and other people, but start attacking the root issues of what leads to drug addiction. Drug addiction. We talked about, and also people who act fucking crazy. Like I saw one of the many interviews with Kane Horman, and on one hand, I kind of agree with him but you know there were a lot of there was a lot of red flag behavior yeah, yeah and his thing was well you think your spouse is normal and you don't go having them investigated you don't think they're going to kill one of your kids yeah kind yeah. of thing and on one hand yeah okay on the other hand i think and i think it's a it's actually an education not education going to school but educating people you know everybody has these superficial ideas of criminals and who they are and people don't understand when you're in a relationship with somebody who's exhibiting red flags yeah, and stuff. Yeah. And maybe some of the resources go into locking up people for selling a cashew to an undercover agent could go towards... Well, we don't do more, anything about mental health issues. Right, we country. don't. Or or about kind of breaking down stereotypes of what's normal behavior in a relationship. And maybe <laughs> right, that's right. not law enforcement's job to do it, but their jo- job would be a lot easier if people understood Ooh, you know what i think my spouse is a sociopath <laughs> yeah and yeah, um yeah. and not have her arrested for being one but there be some path to having that person either get help or we don't put people in mental institutions the way we used to yeah, yeah. I, and i think there's a, a lot of good to that but there was no there was no in good th- right there's no there was no good alternative al- or something yeah. alternative yeah. For like when we were kids in Augusta, people and just An- were released. Right, yeah, when yeah, we were kids in Augusta, and Anaheim, the big and state, these poor people, they right, can't the take big care state of mental health hospital there in Augusta. And Augusta's a city of eighteen thousand people. It's the capital of Maine, but it has eighteen thousand people. And back in the seventies and eighties, they just—I think it was when Reagan was president—they de-regulated. Uh, it actually the began health. under Carter. Right, but it began. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So they just released them, that, um, and there was the no, idea was supposed to be that there would be this whole system of halfway houses. And everything. And none of that was ever funded or put in place. Because, as you can see from budget discussions, even those—not to get all political—I we don't want to do that. But what's going on with the health care bill? People don't want to pay for mental health. Right, right. They don't want to see the. Pe- they don't want to see people though they don't want to see homeless people no they don't yeah. but anyways in any case that was a very well was, done report yeah. oh, thank I guess, you yeah. i guess it just goes to show what happens when we get an actual college professor with a phd on our show i, say that I, I hope it wasn't i wasn't interrupted too often no and that the narrative was clear i think you were interrupted less um, than we usually hey, interrupt that's that's what we do <laughs> i think if this had been interrupt each if other. this had been a discussion in our living room Instead of in our podcast, we'd still be on the first two pages of your thing because of the amount of interruptions. I don't interrupt anyway. I think well, um, I, knew I enjoyed it very much. It's no, a very interesting case. And, we'll see, and I and will certainly you. let you know if there are updates. We will. Yeah, we would want to do updates, and maybe we can even have audio oh, updates. I, I from just you. feel bad seeing us, or we could Skype. I just, you know, every time it's and we have done a lot of children. Oh, and it's such ones, a cute little picture. But I see I know, these poor kids, and I think any crime against children. Like, even I was thinking during, like, the Sandusky trial, too, uh, Jerry Sandusky. Ugh. 
you just think about these assholes these poor kids are so and then they're so vulnerable yeah and watching the keepers they don't know uh, they don't even know they're victims half the time and and you're you're sending them to school or you're sending them off and you're like and you know what always struck me too is that photo of him the last photo of that little boy ever taken and and he's so happy and it's funny he's wearing a csi t-shirt interestingly enough and his little toady frog thing and she after whatever happened to him went home and put that fucking photo on Facebook. And you know, everybody's always putting shit on Facebook, but if she's guilty, what a chilling fucking thing. And this is just, here I am acting normal. You know, it's like the guy... We have an elephant. elephant I know, it's like having Interstate 295 back in our own think tank. But it's like, you know, the guy who kills the girl and then leaves messages on her voicemail. Uh, right, right, hey, right. honey, where are you? Hey, you uh, know, that kind of thing. They do that all yeah. the time. Creepy. So, uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It. Well, my pleasure. I and enjoyed it very much. Thank you very much. And that's Liz Milliken, for those of you who didn't get her, our big sister. Yes. yes. And we don't have Matt. Poor for Matt. Ask a Lawyer. He Matt. will be back. He's very, very busy. Okay. You could ask a history With, professor, but I think the, I've talked enough this, yes, uh, this yes. podcast. Well, if you read the Portland Press Herald, you'll see he's very busy with the noise arson oh, um, um, appeal yes, stuff is, but, yes. but he'll be back soon we promise and make we, contact we do him. know other we do know we another do, we lawyer we have brother billy <laughs> on for ask a lawyer i don't know if i don't know if people could take it but i think that'd be fun i think that'd be a fun episode no, or, i think we should maybe we should just do we a whole ask a lawyer with billy and not <laughs> present because that's but yeah, we wouldn't even need to have. We could ask like a question <laughs> no. and then we he could just talk for the full An hour. hour. Yeah. <laughs> In any case, okay. So, but for our, so we have recommendations. <laughs> we to start. I can Lizzie. start. Well, maybe our guest should oh, start. Well, okay. Well, but I'll so start. My, I'll start because person. I've got one. Too. Okay, and we had talked about, and I realized after my recommendation is probably not a good one for this, but we had talked about if, because we frequently, and I as a mystery novelist, hear people say, I don't like mysteries. At our book club, just recently, there are people in our book group, I shouldn't say are, because I'm an interloper, I only go once in a while, who who don't like mysteries. Mm. So it was, if there's one mystery novel you could recommend to somebody who says they don't like mysteries, that you think they would enjoy and maybe introduce them to the genre in a way that they would want to read them, what would it be? And my first thought, and I realized after, it's not a good one, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. Okay is Clouds of Witness by Dorothy Sayers. And one reason I I think it came to mind is because there are so many things about it that influenced me as a mystery writer, but it's part of the Lord Peter Whimsey series. It was written 90 years ago. I think this one came out in 1926 or 27, and so if my math math isn't good, but I think I have that 90. 90. And Lord Peter, his brother is accused of murdering his sister's fiancé, who's a total asshole. And I won't go into the whole plot in case somebody actually goes and picks it up and reads it, but the things I liked about it are Lord Peter is still suffering the effects of being in World War One. And PS- and I think I've talked to PTSD. yes or shell shock, shell shock back then. And Dorothy Sayers was the first author I read as a young teenager who I felt really got into character. And one of the things about that book that always struck me is he's very good friends with Charles Parker, the Scotland Yard detective who gets himself put on this case with Lord Peter's brother. And over the course of the book. Parker develops a major crush, which ends up being love, on Lord Peter's sister, Mary. 
and there's some discomfort about that because of the class thing in England. Yes. That, um, although Lord Peter, you know, and there's... A, but there was a scene I always remember where this tension between the two friends, and it's just very well done, and the mystery is a, an important part, but the relationships and the character are more important. And they're true in all Dorothy Sayers' books, but in that one, it comes out because his relationship with Parker, his relationship with his brother and sister, his brother's a real doofus, and his sister's kind of flighty, and although this kind of, having her her fiancé be murdered in the conservatory or atrium or whatever, kind of settles her down. Also, there's the moors, and there's a scene that happens in a bog in the moors with Lord Peter almost being sucked under the quicksand that actually inspired a scene in my <laughs> yes. first book. And so my initial thing is that's a great one to recommend because it's got all those elements that keep you reading. And then looking back and kind of rereading too, it was written 90 years ago. So if you're the kind of person who does not want to, I'm not going to say struggle, but doesn't want to have the extra work of reading something that was written and basically it's a foreign country England I mean we have a a similar language but it's not the same language plus it was written 90 years ago so there are different ways of people expressing themselves and there's also a tiny little bit of maybe my one issue with Dorothy Sayers assuming we know a little bit of French yeah but now you got Google Translate yeah that's true (laughs) Um, so it's not I don't know if this book would necessarily make a non-mystery reader a mystery reader it might make them run screen it reminds me of when Twilight was big and I and I didn't see Twilight but I think somebody in Twilight liked Wuthering Heights so a lot of teenage girls kind of went to read Wuthering Heights and or they probably likened it to Wuthering Heights no there was something for some uh, reason my book group read it and I'm the youngest one in my book group and I'm 50 in, in any case, you're and talking about Twilight. Now, yeah. But what I'm saying is, and then people would start reading Wuthering Heights and these, oh, what is this shit, yeah, you know, yeah. kind of thing. And I don't want to get into a big That's thing a about Twilight book, and Wuthering yeah. Heights. Just to say, this book was written 90 years ago. But also, Dorothy Sayers' books, The Nine Tailors, the one that has to do with the bell tower, yeah. and there's a very interesting way somebody was killed in that. The Unpleasantness at the Bologna Club, which is actually pretty funny, because the guy's sitting there dead at his club with the newspaper in his rigored hands, and nobody notices. <laughs> yeah, Probably happened a lot of times. Right, right. I know. Well, I well, the thing I like about Sayers, and I thought about that because one of the first things that came to mind was one of the Sayers novels. I think one of the first I read was like Have His Car- Have His Body, or one of those Have His Carcass. Have His Carcass. Yeah. Is that uh, for one thing, I'm the kind of reader because of me because I'm a historian that I like to read novels set in an earlier time period that evoke a different time period mm-hmm. and so as long as the person is so pulling that, out a smartphone <laughs> some people who maybe are turned off by that would not respond but some people but like, some people yeah, like yeah, that some people but do. i found that one of the things is the thing i think why sayers i think is one of the best mystery novelists around is that she had these very engaging characters mm-hmm. and these really great situations with the plot and I always found her writing style, however you know, antiquated it might seem to people who never read anything that wasn't written more than 10 years ago, mm. I always found her writing style very engaging and witty. Yes. And and so, that, so, for instance, when I read, say, Agatha Christie, however ingenious her plots are, I find her writing style to be fairly wooden. I've never really yeah. thought it's really yeah, I never her. Could get into her. Christie, I get and into I was, her. and I had just when they I they make good movie yes, um, scripts, very good movies. Yeah. When I started reading Dorothy Sayers, I was fourteen, and I know the first one I read was Murder Must Advertise, and I've already talked about it on the show. But it was because you and I had a fight 
that I lost. I wanted to watch The Streets of San Francisco, and you wanted to watch Masterpiece Theater. Yeah. yeah. And Michael somehow, Douglas was so I cute. know. I think that's why I wanted to watch it. And I was immediately engaged. But I had been trying to read Agatha Christie, because I had started reading adult mystery novels, and it, her books didn't pull me in. I know there's a lot of people who like her, but I felt her characters were caricatures, although yes. that's probably not the way I would have articulated it when I was 14. But... The thing that keeps me reading a book, no matter what the genre, is am I interested in the characters yes. and what they're doing? Am I yes. drawn in enough that I believe them as yeah, people? Right. And one of the things, too, about Clouds of Witness I like is that Lord Peter was on this extended vacation in Corsica where he hadn't seen any newspapers or anything after the horrific things of the first novel, Whose Body was the first in the series. And he comes back, and his man, Bunter, puts a newspaper in front of him, and lo and behold, his brother is on trial for murder. And instead of Lord Peter being, you know, he's got to get home, but instead of being horrified, he's kind of delighted by, oh, you know, the poor old Jerry, what's he gotten himself into here kind of thing. And <laughs> oh, hoo -hoo, what an opportunity. Yes, and it's kind of, so it's kind of funny, his his attitude. But when you're rich, when you're a lord, you can't even... So, Becky, did you have a recommendation? Yes, I do. Okay. And mine is the same... What? Oh, Stop trying to, I'm trying to cheat. And I have the same feeling about books. About books. About mystery. Oh, no, I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you mean as far as characters and games? Character. I like character-driven plots. And a lot of people like... Nothing against, like, John Grisham or people like that, but the... It's a shallow depiction of a character, mm. and it's plot-driven, and some people really like that type of book. Yeah. One of my favorite mystery novelists is, she just died a couple years ago, Ruth Rendell. Oh, oh yes. yes. I yeah. love Ruth yeah, Rendell. I thought oh, Ruth Rendell. She's known for her Inspector Wexford series, mm -hmm. and this is not one of those. This is a standalone book. It was published in 1977. It's called Judgment in Stone. Oh, or yeah. A I almost, Judgment. I almost, I almost brought a that one up. Judgment in I almost Stone. brought that one up. I don't know if you would consider it a mystery, although it's under mysteries. Hers are very psychological. Yes, they're very psychological. She delves deep into, and that's one thing, she more than any other author that I like, although I'll say Elizabeth George is kind of that way, and P.D. Jane sometimes is. They go deep into the inner workings of even the criminal, and that's what I like about, about Ruth Rendell, I think, more than anyone else. She... I hate the books, and you've. Ta I don't know if you've talked about it on the podcast or just in, in when you're talking, but I don't like that technique where they have the voice of the criminal. Oh, mom and I. Mom just read a book where it did that. Uh, you know, they don't. Yeah. They don't oh, identify that. the criminal, but that. they have what he or she is thinking. Yeah, she I doesn't do this, but she does go into their mind. So this one, Eunice, is the protagonist. She's a housekeeper, and you find out in the very beginning that she killed this whole family that she worked for. Yeah. So the whole book is leading up to that and you try to figure out why she did it and it says in the beginning why she did it she was illiterate and she was afraid that people would find out she couldn't read and and yes. it's weird oh, it's, but yeah. she it's a very complicated there are a lot of characters so i can't really go into the plot but she she had killed her father or somebody she kills people in the beginning of the book and then someone's trying to i don't want to give away the whole plot but she gets this job at this family's although estate. you did give away the final what that she kills him no that she couldn't read no that tells that at the beginning oh, okay. too you know that from the beginning that's why and she gets this job at this estate and she befriends a postmistress who's fucking insane 
And so together, the two of them have this weird relationship, and it doesn't end well, I'll put it that way. But her books are fairly long. The thing I like about them is, like you were talking about uh, with Dorothy Sayers, the characters are what drives the plot. And I had considered a couple of other of her books for this um, recommendation. One of them was is called, well, one of them was The Crocodile Bird that came out in 1995 about the girl oh, like, and her oh, mother yeah. that grew up on a state. The girl never sees any other people. And that's not really a mystery. It's more of a... And hers aren't like... I always find her books that have a lot of psychological... They're very yeah. psychological. You know, they, and that's they're mysteries in that you want it, and it's the biggest, to me, it's the biggest... You want to find out why. You want to know why Why? Why somebody did did something. Yeah. And she also writes as Barbara Vine. Yes, she also writes as Barbara Vine. The other one came out in, I think it was first published in 1974, and then it was republished in like 1987. And I don't know if it's still in print, but called The Face of Trespass. And it's about this guy who's a writer who had had some success, but then he was, I don't know if he's having writer's block or something was going on, but he was living in his I think his aunt's this derelict cottage. He's having an affair with this married woman and he's obsessed with her. And she talks him into killing her husband or something. That'll the, cure your writer. The thing yeah. I remember the most about that that you might remember is his aunt asks him to take care the of her dog. dog. Yeah, yeah, her dog. Nuts. I kept saying, what about the dog? That dog is alone in the house. What about the she, dog? And he, that caused more attention yeah, when I was I reading know. that book than anything else. That he, he's supposed to take care of this dog and he can't do it. And he asks this, you know, the woman he's having an affair. And she says, oh, sure. And then she tells him she hadn't done anything with the dog. And Yes. And you're like thinking the dog's dead. And the guy, it's just. I know. I was very worried. But both of those dog. books. In fact, um, when you brought up a judgment in stone, I was going to say, is that the one with the dog? Yeah. <laughs> but the, the one where she can't read, it seems like a really odd reason for someone to kill someone. But, but. the way she writes it and all her books are are like that. Yeah. But I would also give honorable mention the same type of writers for mysteries would be, like I said, P.D. James, mm-hmm. Elizabeth mm-hmm. George, yes. but I also J.K. Rowling. Yes. Very good. Yeah. And new to the mystery scene, but a very good writer. Yes. All her books are good anyway. All of her books are character driven, even the Harry Potter series. So, Mm. Uh, that's why people love those books so much. Yeah. It's not the m- magic and wizardry; mm. it's the uh, people in the books. Yeah. So now, it's Liz, Liz, did you do you have one? Now? I do, but yeah. I do want to give a kind of a uh, couple honorable mentions first, and because they predate and they do reflect my love and appreciation of 19th century literature, and I realize that many modern readers are not comfortable. You know, it's it's kind of difficult for me because I read 19th century literature from an early age. And yeah. So I would, one of the things, of course, I would just, of course, give a real huge honorable mention to the Sherlock Holmes stories. Oh, yeah. And anyone who's never read them, they still really appeal to people. I still have students who read those stories and love them. Our nephew Dave and love them. Oh, actually, all three of them. And they are short stories, for the most part, um, or very, very short novels. A couple of them are really little, like, novelettes. But they are short stories, so for those people who perhaps are less inclined to read an entire novel... You can make all kinds of criticism of them, including the fact that often the plots aren't very well together. Mm-hmm. And again, the character, not just Sherlock Holmes, but Watson, but, but as, well. Watson as um, a kind of, as two characters and their friendship they have. And just, you know, Sherlock Holmes is one of the most vivid and interesting figures in literature across the board. And he's I think. still very popular yeah, now. He's I still mean, very popular. Two, shows or two TV shows, yeah, right. and, you no, know, all kinds no. of. He gets spun off movie. like Shakespeare a lot, where you put him in different. Right, right, and um, and and if anyone who has never actually read the Sherlock Holmes stories, I think 
I should really read them stories. Yeah. Another thing, too, and I just read a review of a biography in the New York Review of Books about it and it made me think I should really revisit as there was this review of a biography of Wilkie Collins. Oh, and, yeah. And it made me, and I remember being riveted by The, the Moonstone, Moonstone and Moonstone. The Woman in White. Yeah. Um, both which, but The Moonstone in particular, which kind of really created the genre of the a mystery novel. They also yeah, kind of Edgar Allan Poe did, too. Yeah, but Edgar Allan Poe... He's a mystery story because he didn't oh, write any novels. Yeah, he didn't okay. write any novels and so the... My they, boy. And, 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 the and this reviewer, this reviewer, reviewer claimed that Wilkie Collins wrote all kinds of other things after that never were anywhere nearly as successful. And this reviewer claims that you go reread and apparently this reviewer had read most of what Wilkie Collins had written. He said the the Moonstone and the Woman in White are still head and shoulders above Hmm. and uh, what anything else Collins ever wrote and also still really stand up as really great mystery novels. I read a review of that of that biography it sounds yeah and it made me want to in fact I think this summer I am going to go back to those because that's probably was I was a teenager the last time Mm -hmm. I read them yeah and um, the first person I thought of as a modern mystery writer although he is now dead is that's Tony Hillerman oh Oh, yeah and if if anyone and and his I think the first shout out for the American mystery writer yeah they're all set in Navajo country and his main character who he introduces in his first book which is called The Blessing Way is Joe Leaphorn who's a detective in the Navajo tribal police. Hillerman himself was not Navajo or of Native American extraction but he lived he had moved to that region and very uh, responsibly you know really educated himself about Navajo life and culture and I think they're very well crafted novels and as mystery novels they're very well crafted plots but again it's the characters Mm -hmm. and also to my because it's a part of the country I'm fascinated with Mm. and have visited a number of times um, the and I think that's why a lot of people are attracted to these mystery novels Mm -hmm. the how well he evokes that environment of the southwest and the very interesting characters but joe leaphorn is really interesting and then in the i think it's the fourth novel i can't remember which one he introduces a new character jimmy chi and then they finally in the seventh novel actually end up working together and i think that's they mentioned that as the first that's skinwalkers and i think that's mm-hmm. the novel most people are familiar i think with. i've read yeah, that because it was kind of his breakout novel where he yeah. got a wider readership mm-hmm. and the relationship between joe leaphorn and jimmy chi really plays out in that um, I can't remember all the details of it. It's actually been a while since I've read some of these um, Tony Hillerman novels. And they're really, really good. And they work. They're not, um, you know, they really kind of work as character driven novels and they evoke that environment of the American Southwest in oh. really I think really really interesting way um, and I'm just you re- should and I'm yes. just reading here it makes me interesting in pursuing Killerman claimed that he was very very much inspired by an, a British born Australian author named Arthur Upfield mm. who wrote mystery novels set in Abr- the uh, remote oh, parts of Australia dealing with Aboriginal life that and who had a had a detective inspector hmm. named Napoleon Bonaparte who was half Australian and half oh, uh, I've heard of that. and I've well, never read these Arthur books Upfield, um, Arthur Upfield and it makes me really note. interested in reading these novels that Hillerman claimed as were a major inspiration wow, for his okay. writing of That's a brave thing uh, the Joe Leaphorn um, novels to, to, to so I would I would recommend Tony Hillerman he's now died in 2008 oh, um, and he were they're really really well written there's humor there's actually quite a lot of humor mm. in the novels um, they're full of the, all you the, gotta have humor this interesting the 
the characters are great. You really love Joe Leaphorn and Jimmy Chi. And then once they get to know each other in the novels and work together, the relationship with one another and just the the setting to me is fascinating. Nice. And, and uh, the tribal lands of of north um, northern Arizona and um, northern New Mexico. Well, yeah. that's interesting. We all picked three different. We did. And I'm going to ask this because I can, because it's our podcast. Would you recommend my mystery novels to somebody? Yes. Yes. And I do. I do all the time. I do all the time. I had a customer, his wife asked me, can't remember how we got on the subject, but because I work as a kitchen designer, I spend a lot hours and hours with my customers. I had some of your either I think your bookmarks, and she said she read mystery novels, so I gave her the bookmark, and she's like, "Oh, I can't wait! I'm gonna go buy it." And then her <laughs> husband came in to talk to me about something, and he said that he was in the middle of your second one. Wow! He read the first one because his wife read it, and she went and bought the second one, and so they both yes, they better both get their fans, and they can't wait till the third well, one. Several of my friends have read. I think both of your books at this point and recommend them to people on a regular basis. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. And there are links to them. (laughs) Cold hard news and no news is is bad news. But also, we had a compliment about our website the other day by someone that said, (laughs) she said, we're both so smart. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now with Liz on, we're going to be even smarter. And um, (laughs) that brings us to... Our website, you can check out our podcast and other stuff about us. Although My they're books, already listening are, to our yeah. podcast. Well, well yeah, okay. but like other episodes and stuff yes. of it. At Crime and Stuff Online. Yes. You can find us on Instagram. Facebook, Facebook, Twitter, Twitter, and and my tip, because I'm always doing the wrong thing, Mm. is try A-N-D, crime A-N-D stuff, and if that doesn't work, try the ampersand. Yeah, one of them has an ampersand. But usually it's crime with the A-N-D spelled out. Stuff. Because I tried to put a link to some, and it was wrong. I think Twitter's it's the usually A N D. Facebook, uh, Facebook has, an has the ampersand. ampersand. Yeah. And we got our new one coming out, Groovy, Groovy Tube. Tube, the first season, the Crimes of the Brady Bunch. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's what we're talking about, yes. yeah. And we'll um, we're gonna have a lot of fun with that. Maybe sometime you can be, and we're gonna talk about the Mod Squad in season Ooh, two and Room oh. Two Twenty Two. Oh wow! And season Ooh, three. Right. So Ooh. we're getting ahead of, and then I have my uh, notes from a cranky editor. You can find also, and I don't have any other website, so podcast. Yeah, we, three's enough for us. I, I do have my course pages for my students, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but they're only for my students. That's so right. you have to take one of my classes at Mount Hood yeah. Community College in Gresham, Oregon. <laughs> and we want to thank Liz <laughs> thank from you. from one Portland to we another love Portland. Having, yes, yes, yes we, we do. do. Thanks for like, especially now. Too. This is oh. the first, and it, we're in our new studio. Yeah, our well, new South Portland's kind of a damp studio. That's all right. It's okay. working for it's us. It's a hot in your basement. Day, so oh, it's, it's a beautiful. It's nice and so cool. It's nice and cool. When we go upstairs, okay. it's going to be. And a next lot. week, we're going to unless something happens to to throw it off the schedule, we're going to be talking about the Connecticut Valley. I'm very interested serial in that killer because I don't know much about that. I actually one. did a story. It was a very brief one when one of the victims was murdered when I worked at the Union Leader, Barbara Agnew, in 1987. Aww. And so we're going to talk about it, and we're going to talk about its relationship with the Tony Sanborn case. Yes. Well, I want, I want to thank you guys for inviting me. And it just occurred to me, too, if you ever want me to come again for oh, other regional Pacific Northwest yes, we would. crimes. I thought of the Green River Killer. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, be- love I believe killers. they just they found someone. There was some case where they found someone 
Um, recently, yes. where they he he was either the Green River Killer or some other serial they had a lot killer. of them. I just read um, them. I, think I just they read it. Any one time, there finally. are seventy-five serial killers operating yes. in the United States. Well, so I thought some people, which they may be totally wrong, are thinking the Green River Killer might be that original Night Stalker one. Might oh, and that he moved his way down. Yes, he the, moved down to California, down, down the, the coast, down yeah. the coast. And we'll we'll talk about that at some point oh, too. God, but yes, we so will. And now that I've so figured out how this works, it'll be easy for you to Skype in and be a guest. Oh, good. oh great! From three thousand miles away. Yay! Okay. So okay. so again, thanks for coming. Thank and you. Everybody. We'll see everybody next week. Bye bye. Goodbye. Maureen Milliken and I'm Rebecca Milliken and we're really excited about a new podcast we have dropping at the end of June Groovy Tube yes and we watch a lot of TV as kids a lot and it's still influencing us today yes <laughs> <laughs> yes it is it is no we watch TV all the time and, and you know we read we read a lot too so anyone that yeah, says so we're you not can stupid well you know but this is kind of looking at our childhood TV shows through the lens, through the lens of, of being a, not only an adult, but just through the time passing. How do they stand up as far as what's acceptable in society today? What was acceptable back then? Stuff like that. It's interesting. And, and other things, too. Yeah. Just have funny things. And, yeah, funny things. And things. we know these shows had an influence on people because people, our generation and people younger, references... And we have a lot of affection for the... Yes, we do. We will be, you know, criticizing stuff too, but it's like and the way you criticize right. people that you... That you care yeah, about. But. And so. so for the first season, The Crimes of the Brady Bunch, we're going to be talking about The Brady Bunch. Yes. We're going to have 22, 22 episodes. episodes. And each one we're going to talk about about half a dozen shows. We're going to go through chronologically in case you want to follow along. Yes, on Hulu or... Um, they're on CBS app. There's some missing. But they're, we found them on YouTube. Yeah, we found them on YouTube. And we're You going, can buy the DVDs if you love them that much. And we'll talk about the episodes. We'll have some fun facts. We'll each have at least one, if not more, favorite quotes yes. from that group of episodes and talk about those. Here's a sampling of what you might expect from our show. So the premise is the... Girls want to play in the boys' crappy old clubhouse. Which the first and only time we've the ever first, seen that. As I said, thing. and at the end they build a clubhouse for the girls, and that's the first and only time you yeah. see that one. Because that's another thing that goes through the entire series is something happens, or there's some symptom or some problem that only happens in that episode. Yes. Like Chan sneezing. If she was allergic to fucking Tiger, she would have been sneezing from the wedding no on. No shit. She wouldn't have been sneezing. And like Fluffy. Never, never ever to be seen again. Right. And this is something I didn't realize, that they didn't want to also have yes. Carol be a widow, so it was very vague. They never mentioned him, because, according to Barry... But it's like, way way to go, former Mr. Carol Tyler, or whatever wasp generic name they had, that, you know, you just abandon your three daughters and nobody ever talks about you again. I know. Maybe she killed him. Yeah. According to... Um, Barry Williams. Barry Williams. Sherwood Schwartz. 
who was the was producer the and producer. Uh, the network locked horns over the fate of Carol's first husband. This is quoting from Barry's book. Sherwood wanted him alive, well, and happily divorced from Carol, but the network demanded his death. Sherwood mm-hmm. met with the brass, smiled, nodded, and was extremely polite, but paid no attention to their suggestions. He left the fate of Carol's father, the girl's father, uncertain. You may notice she never refers to the guys being dead. Well, and they never refer after the first episode to the either one of them. So yeah. You know, she says, "I'm sure if the girls had a dollhouse uh, and the boys, why was that your quote? Uh, it's my quote." Scheming and fucking yes, mind games and trickery and sadism that goes on. But Alice says, who needs an old Victrola when stereo comes in? And I was like, what is she? Was she is like, did she, she have sex with them too? Yeah. Okay, so that's some of what you're going to hear on GroovyTube. You can pre-subscribe on iTunes or uh, on, on our a- website. GroovyTubePodcast.com GroovyTube, and that's Groovy Tube. Tube, all one word. Podcast. And the website is GroovyTubePodcast.com Yeah. And we're looking forward to having a groovy time with you guys. Yeah, It's going to be out of sight. Solid. That'll be season two of the Mod Squad. Don't wig out, man. Special thanks to Ben Sound for our groovy music.